Good morning once again. Good to see you all. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to uh, the Gospel of John chapter 10? As you're doing that, if you're new with us, we welcome you. It's good to see you this morning. And to let you know, we are studying the Gospel of John here at Calvary on Sunday mornings. As I just said, we're in chapter 10 in a section where Jesus calls himself the good Shepherd. Now, I was thinking about this this week and how that, you know, I, I tend to take some things for granted, like people are interested in everything in God's Word, which they should be. Um, but I started thinking, what if there's a new person here today, and um, they might be thinking to themselves along these lines, you know, uh, you're in a section where Jesus calls himself the good shepherd. Well, what possible relevance does Jesus being a shepherd have to my life? I mean, you know, I'm living in a modern society, 2,000 years in the future, 6,000 miles apart from the place where Jesus spoke these words. I mean, come on. Uh, how is this going to help me uh, live my life? Well, that's actually not a bad question. Okay. What possible relevance indeed? Well, first of all, let me just say this to you. When you read your Bible, try to remember that times change, fashion changes, technology changes, even cultures change. But people essentially remain the same. In other words, the stories that we read in the Bible, stories that took place, you know, long ago in an industrial or, excuse me, in an agricultural setting, which most Americans, because we live in an industrial society for the most part, you can't relate to these things today for the most part as Americans, but they can still teach us. The Holy Spirit uses these stories to teach us principles that we can learn from that will help us live our modern lives. And that's because the principles the Holy Spirit is teaching us through these stories are relevant to any person living at any time in human history in any cultural context that you can imagine. Because again, culture, fashion, technology change, but people remain the same. So whether you're a person who was a farmer living by the Sea of Galilee 2,000 years ago and actually heard uh, Jesus give the Sermon on the Mount, or you know, you're a stockbroker living in Chicago listening to uh, the words of Christ or the teachings of Jesus on Christian radio today. Uh, life principles remain the same. When a person, when Jesus called himself the good shepherd, it's true that his audience had an advantage over us because they did live in an agrarian culture, a culture that, you know, lived close to the soil, close to the land. And as such, they understood things like farming and livestock. And so they would have immediately connected with the meaning of what Jesus was saying. When he called himself the good shepherd, they would have immediately connected with that statement because they knew what was involved in being a shepherd and taking care of sheep. We have to study uh, to get, you know, an understanding of what it was like for them and what these things really meant. Let me, um, let me read to you one author. I think he summed it up well. Uh, summed up our modern disadvantage with regard to the teachings of Jesus with the advantage that his audience had uh, over us in understanding his words. He said, and I quote, We as Christians living in America in the 21st century lose out quite a bit when we read the Bible. Much of the significance behind the illustrations, parables, and language used doesn't really communicate to us because we are so far removed from the cultural setting in which these things were spoken. 
And even though the biblical writers spoke and wrote in very simple, everyday language, using very common and familiar illustrations and examples, yet much of what they taught escapes us. For the most part, the men that spoke and wrote these things were simple folk who lived in a rural setting. They were people who were familiar with nature, outdoor life, and, land, and the land around them. Many of them were farmers, fishermen, shepherds, and the like, who drew much of their language and illustrations from their occupations and familiar surroundings. Most people in America, like us, are city people who are totally unfamiliar with such things as livestock, crops, farmland, vineyards, and wildlife. Therefore, we miss much of the truth taught in God's Word because we're not familiar with such things as sheep, wheat, soil, and grapes. <laughs> I like to eat grapes. I don't know how to grow grapes. We must therefore transport ourselves, if you will, into their cultural setting and familiarize ourselves with their rural lifestyle. If we're going to fully understand everything, the Bible in general, and Jesus in particular, desired to teach us through these things. As we come to John's Gospel, chapter 10, Jesus draws from one of these very familiar and common illustrations, the illustration of a shepherd and his sheep, and in the process... He teaches us a wonderful and powerful principle, the love and care of God for his people, whom he likens in his word to sheep, end quote. All right, so let me just give you um, the first point on my outline this morning. I'm just labeling the shepherd. And it's a general point, okay? Let me start by giving you some cultural background as to what it meant, as to what went into shepherding in those days. Back then, the shepherd was absolutely responsible for the sheep. If one of them was stolen, the shepherd was responsible to make restitution to the owner. If one of the sheep was carried off and devoured by a predator, again, the shepherd was responsible to make good on the loss, unless he could produce the dead carcass, or at least a part of it, to show the owner that the, uh, as evidence that the uh, sheep had been, you know, uh, attacked and, uh, and killed and eaten by a predator of some kind. Uh, God in the law made this clear in Exodus 22, verse 13. He said, if an animal under your care is, uh, is uh, taken by a predator and torn in pieces, God said, then he shall bring uh, the carcass as evidence. If you can bring the carcass, the dead carcass as evidence to the owner, uh, God says, then the person uh, the shepherd, the one tending somebody's uh, livestock, um, does not have to make it good, does not have to reimburse the owner because an animal got it, okay? Often, though, there was no visible evidence the shepherd could produce to show the owner that a predator had uh, killed and devoured one of the sheep, which meant the shepherd himself had to suffer the loss of wages, the loss in wages to then replace the sheep. Consequently, as you can imagine, the shepherd did his best to be vigilant against predators and thieves, knowing the money was going to come out of his pocket if anything happened to one of those sheep. Now, before we come down too hard on the owner of the sheep for being, you know, unfair, you have to understand that shepherds back then were at the bottom of the social ladder. In other words, they were notoriously corrupt and known to pilfer from the very flocks they were entrusted and often paid to watch over. 
And so God understanding human nature, you know, when you read God's laws, every time I'm in the Old Testament reading the laws of God, you know, I'm in, you know, Exodus and Leviticus, Deuteronomy, I, I'm always amazed at how wise. Now, we know God's all wise. I, I get that. But when you actually read his laws, I find, I find myself saying, right on, Lord. That is so wise. Because God knew human nature, and he knew how to curtail man's natural inclinations towards thievery and selfishness because God incorporated into his law the retribution, the consequences. And so, you know, God knew that human nature was such that if there was no accountability, well, it wouldn't be good, all right? It wouldn't be good. So God mandated that the shepherd had to produce evidence that a sheep had been killed by, you know, a wolf, a lion, a bear, something, a predator, before being released from the responsibility of making restitution to the sheep's owner. Look, there wasn't any accountability. Think about it. A corrupt shepherd could steal, fleece, even barbecue a sheep. Have a big barbecue for him and his buddies, right? And say it was the sheep was stolen or carried off by a wolf or some other kind of animal. But also, this had the uh, this tended to weed out the bad shepherds from the profession, and ensure that only the, it didn't work 100. percent You know, I mean, there was always some that got in, some bad shepherds. Uh, but by this, God weeded out for the most part uh, the bad shepherds from the profession to ensure that only those with a heart for the sheep got into shepherding, primarily because only they would put up with the rigorous standards and dangerous conditions that went into the shepherding profession. You see, only a man, and, and there, were, there were female shepherds, but not many, all right, because it was a dangerous job. So mostly it was men, or, or young men, or, you know, but men. And, um, but only a man who loved the sheep would be willing to put his life on the line to protect the sheep from predators and thieves, which were a constant danger back then. Another commentator put it this way, said, and I quote, the job of a shepherd was not an easy one. It required courage, commitment, hard work, and, genu and a genuine love for the sheep, seeing as the shepherd would sometimes be called to put his life on the line to protect the sheep from predators and thieves. In Bible times, lions, wolves, jackals, panthers, leopards, bears, and hyenas were common in the countryside. The life of a shepherd could be dangerous, as illustrated by David, uh, who fought at least one lion and one bear. David himself tells us that in 1 Samuel 17. The author says, being a shepherd meant leading the sheep miles away from his home in search of places where they could graze, living out in the open countryside for weeks and even months at a time without seeing his friends and family. It was truly a labor of love for those who were good shepherds, end quote. This then sets the stage and forms the background for Jesus' comparison of himself as the good shepherd in contrast to the bad shepherds of Israel who were the chief priests, scribes, and Pharisees, whom Jesus calls in verses 12 and 13 hirelings, hirelings. Let's just start out with the good shepherd. We looked at shepherds. Now let's focus on the good shepherd. Verse 11, I am the good 
shepherd, Jesus said. As we said last time, John 10 is a continuation of chapter 9, where the Pharisees, who were again the religious leaders slash shepherds of Israel, excommunicated a man from Judaism, put him out of the synagogue, same thing as kicking him out of the religion, but excommunicated a man who was born blind, by the way. This, the Holy Spirit makes it a point to let us know this man was born blind, all right? And uh, Jesus seeks him out, heals him, and it created quite a stir. Uh, got the attention of the Pharisees. So they called the guy in, because they were the religious leaders, uh, you know, and they began to interrogate the guy. Well, how did you get healed? Well, a man named Jesus uh, spit on the ground and made some mud and put it on my eyes and said, go wash in the pool of Siloam. And I did, and I, I can see now. Oh, no, it couldn't be Jesus. We know he's a sinner. No, no, tell us again what happened exactly. Well, I was born blind. You know, and he goes through about three or four times, you know, and, and, and he's getting kind of frustrated, right? And, uh, and so, uh, you know, they finally ask, well, what, do you what do you think about him? Who is he? I think he's a prophet of God. Well, that infuriated them because they thought Jesus was a demon, all right? Eventually, they just excommunicated the guy. You know, they didn't want to hear it. They weren't ready to accept what he had to say about Jesus, so they excommunicated him uh, because he called Jesus a prophet of God, uh, chapter 9, verse 17. So he's put out of the religion, basically. Jesus seeks him out and, uh, and uh, leads him to him. <laughs> we talk about leading people to Christ. Well, here Christ leads somebody to himself. And, uh, you know, and the guy's saved now. Best thing ever happened to the guy was when he got thrown out of religion because now he sought a relationship with Christ, right? Best thing that ever happened to me was when I left the Catholic faith, uh, when I left religion, and just found Jesus, have a, just have a personal relationship with him. That's what salvation is all about, right? And um, that became the segue then into chapter 10, where Jesus declared himself to be the good shepherd, as opposed to the religious leaders of Israel who were selfish and evil shepherds. And as we said last week, guys, when Jesus called himself the good, or the week before, uh, when Jesus, there was a Phil Ballmeyer preaching last week, but it wasn't me. Um, when Jesus called himself the good shepherd, it immediately connected him to the promises that God gave to Israel so many centuries earlier through the prophets. In the days when the spiritual leaders and teachers of the nation didn't care about God's sheep, but only used them as a way to gain power, prestige, and wealth. And God condemned them all over the Old Testament through his prophets. He condemned these so-called shepherds in the strongest terms and promised that someday he would send his people a good shepherd, a good shepherd to replace all the evil shepherds that had plagued the nation and preyed upon God's sheep for so many years. You can read Jeremiah chapter 23, Ezekiel chapter 34 to get a flavor of what I'm talking about. When Jesus said, we're still reviewing a little from last week, when Jesus said, I am the good shepherd, the Greek is, I am the shepherd, the good one. And by saying that, I believe he was saying to them, I'm the fulfillment of the promise God gave to you so many years ago. I'm the good shepherd that was promised. I'm the good shepherd that was prophesied that was coming. I'm here. I'm the good shepherd, all right, as opposed to all the other false and 
evil shepherds that the nation had put up with for so many years. And what was it that made Jesus such a good shepherd, apart from the fact that he was God incarnate? I'll get that, okay? But what was it? What did the Lord himself point to uh, to indicate he was the good shepherd? Well, verse 11, he said, the good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. That's what made him the good shepherd. He was willing to die and did eventually die, of course, on the cross to save the sheep. Now, the word for in verse 11, the good shepherd gives his life for the sheep, is the Greek word huper, which means, listen, not merely on behalf of, but instead of, in place of. It's the idea of rescuing the life of another by laying down your own life. Rescuing someone at the expense of your life. Jesus was saying the good shepherd gives his life in place of the sheep. It's what the theologians call penal substitution. Penal means punishment, substitution. You know, another was punished in our place. That's the gospel, folks. You all know Isaiah 53. Read it again this week. You know, I mean, all we like sheep have gone astray. Everyone has turned to his own way, but the Lord has laid on him. Jesus, the iniquity of us all. He was beaten and bruised and, and, and all for our sins, that we might be made righteous. Another was, was, was punished in my place. That's the gospel. None of us are good enough to get to heaven by our good works, religious deeds. I don't care how many candles you light or rosaries you pray. I was there. Nobody can get to heaven based on your religious deeds or good works. Because the soul that sins shall surely die unless a substitute stepped in. None of us could die for sinners because we're all sinners. It would take a sinless substitute. The Lamb of God, perfect Lamb of God, who took away the sins of the world by dying in our place. I am the shepherd, the good one. And I died, I will die in place of the sheep so that they won't have to die and go to hell for eternity. I mean, can you see the contrast the Lord Jesus is drawing between himself as the good shepherd and the false shepherds who were, as he described them, were thieves, robbers, and hirelings. Can you even see the contrast he's making between himself as the instrument of grace in the new covenant as opposed to the law, which was the instrument of condemnation under the old covenant, the Mosaic covenant? In the Old Testament, the word testament means covenant. In the, in the Old Testament, uh, this is profound. In the Old Testament, the sheep died for the shepherd. What do you mean? Well, the shepherds were sinners, so they had to bring an offering for their sins, often a, a lamb or a sheep. Under the old Mosaic covenant, the shepherds, the sheep died for the shepherds as they were offered for their sins. But in the new covenant, the shepherd, the good one, died for the sheep. The good shepherd gave his life so that we could become God's sheep and live forever. But in general, in general, 
a good shepherd back then put the needs and lives of the sheep before his own. However, however, not all shepherds were good shepherds. For many, it was nothing more than a job. And so Jesus said at the beginning of verse 12, in contra I am the good shepherd, but in contrast to me you have the hirelings. But a hireling, he who is not the shepherd, one who does not own the sheep, let me stop there. Usually the shepherd was either the owner of the sheep or a son of the owner. But in some cases, the owner was maybe too old or too sickly to shepherd the sheep. It was a rigorous job. Maybe he didn't have any children. And so in that case, he would have to hire help. This shepherd was called a hireling. A hireling. Because the hireling was nothing more than a paid employee who didn't own the sheep and therefore had no, no real love for them, when thieves and or predators showed up, he would often choose his life over the sheep's and would run away, leaving the sheep to fend for themselves, leaving the sheep alone. Now, you have to understand sheep. Sheep have no natural defense mechanisms. All they can do is run. And they're not really good at that either, okay? <laughs> they're just not designed for speed, okay? Uh, and so they're pretty much at the mercy of a predator. That's why they need a shepherd, by the way, because they have no natural defense mechanism. So you got a shepherd who's getting paid to do a job, and here comes a wolf or something, and he, he, he freaks out uh, some of these guys and would, and would bail. And, and the sheep would be, you know, it's like, you know, you might as well ring a dinner bell because dinner is served. I mean, these sheep, you know, there's no way they're getting away from this wolf, Okay. And Jesus goes on to say that. He said, again, verse 12, But a hireling who was not the shepherd, one who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf catches the sheep and scatters them. The hireling flees because he is a hireling and does not care about the sheep. Now, you have to go back to chapter 8 to find out. But as you go back to chapter 8, among the, the crowd that was there, there was also the scribes and Pharisees who were there, all right? So you have to imagine now that, imagine Jesus saying these words, all right, and uh, standing right there where, when Jesus spoke these words with the scribes and the Pharisees, and he nails them. He nails these guys. I mean, the Lord Jesus Christ it, it came to the worst sinners of society and nothing but compassion and, and, and tenderness toward. When it came to these religious hypocrites, who acted so pious but took advantage of people and, and, and threw widows out of their houses to foreclose because they missed a payment, maybe the husband died. Terrible people that stood on the street corners and prayed long prayers for a pretense. Man, was he hard on them. You're a sinner. We're, we all are. You're involved in a sin this morning. Get it right with God. But know there's compassion and mercy waiting for you. Jesus, come to me. We'll, we can make it right. Come to me. I'll forgive you. But when a person's a hypocrite playing a part and acting pious and like they're a wonderful man or woman of God and they're, and they're doing all kinds of things on, uh, in secret to hurt people, the Lord has nothing but contempt for that. Now, there's forgiveness if you get right, but he really comes down hard on these kind of people. He did it with the Pharisees. Here, here's what he's basically, in essence, saying to them. He's saying, you know, you don't have any love or concern for God's sheep. You're nothing more than hirelings, religious mercenaries, 
who are only in it for the money and the prestige that comes from your job as leaders and teachers in Israel. But when, but when trouble comes, you bail out, and the sheep are torn apart and scattered by the wolves. We'll get into that a little more next time. Uh, satanic attacks, uh, false doctrine, and, and, and the like is the idea. I will have you turn to Ezekiel 34. I want to read you the first six verses. I think we've read this at least once, maybe twice in this series so far. I'd like to read it again, though, because this is really, I believe, the main passage that Jesus was, was keying in on. I mean, God had talked against these evil shepherds for centuries. And to give you a flavor of what he was saying in Ezekiel 34, verse 1, starting there, I'll read it to you out of the NLT 2nd edition. Then this message came to me, Ezekiel said, from the Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, Yahweh, the I am. Who do you think is talking here? I kind of feel it's Jesus. Before he was incarnated on the earth. I believe the Lord Jesus Christ is talking, the great I am. How many times did he call himself the great I am in John's gospel? And he's indicting these wicked shepherds and basically saying there's coming a day when I'm going to come and I'm going to be in the midst of my people and I'm going to shepherd them as a good shepherd. But here, listen to what he said. Verse 2, son of man, talking to Ezekiel, prophesy against the shepherds, the leaders of Israel. Give them this message from the sovereign Lord. What sorrow awaits you shepherds who feed yourselves instead of your flocks? Shouldn't shepherds feed their sheep? You drink the milk, wear the wool, and butcher the best animals, but you let your flock starve. You have not taken care of the weak. You have not tended to the, the sick or bound up the injured. You have not gone looking for those who have wandered away and are lost. Instead, you have ruled them with harshness and cruelty. So my sheep have been scattered without a shepherd, and they are easy prey for any wild animal. They, are, they have wandered through all the mountains and all the hills across the face of the earth, yet no one has gone to search for them. And you can read the rest. Look, corrupt and evil shepherds, as Jesus called them hirelings, corrupt and evil shepherds of God's sheep were not unique to Israel back then. There are many in the Christian church today ministering in the name of Jesus Christ. In fact, the church is infested with hirelings, infested with hirelings in every phase and at every level of Christian service, men and women who are only in it for the money and the prestige, who don't care one bit about the sheep. I get mail from some of them. This is an actual letter. I think I got this back in the early 90s, okay? Uh, they moved away from this style. It's a little transparent, but okay. This is an actual letter, okay? My dear brother, the Lord laid you on my heart to pray for you. Oh, wow. The Lord actually laid me on some televangelist heart, and he's going to pray for me. I'm touched. Dear brother, the Lord laid you on my heart to pray for you. I wish my wife and I could sit in your living room there at 
And my address is there. They know where I live. They're sending me letters. All right. That's not too surprising. I wish my wife and I could sit in your living room there at my address so that we can pray for your need and also to share with you our need in the work we are doing for God. And then it goes on. Folks, there are people who are professional fundraisers. I know that most of you know that. There are people that are professional fundraisers who make a living out of coming up with ideas like that for donation letters, which they then sell to evangelists and pastors who use them in mass mail-outs in an attempt to raise money for their ministries. It's their business. It's what they do for a living. And Christian ministries will often pay a hefty price for their ideas. And often, it's where the uh, company that produces this stuff gets a percentage of the take. A percentage of the take. So how much money is raised? We get a percentage. Some time ago, and I'm talking maybe, you know, 15, 20 years ago, Christianity Today magazine reported that the letter idea, the letter idea, somebody came up with this, all right? Maybe you, you got one of these letters at some point. Um, Christianity Today magazine reported that the letter idea, and I'm quoting now, I'm going to my, I'm go, I'm going to go into my prayer tower to pray for you. So if you'll mail in your request to me, I'll go up there and not come down till I get an answer for you from God. Also, if you could send in a check to help us with this vital ministry, we would so appreciate it. And it goes on. That little idea about going up into the prayer tower and, 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 and so on, taking the request of a person with the evangelist, uh, was a cash cow. It netted millions and millions. It connected with people. And netted millions and millions of dollars. Later, it's like a one-two thing, right? So they send you this initial letter. And so, you know, some people are really hurting, desperate. They just really need God to speak to them or come through for them. So they will, you know, fill out a prayer request and they'll send in 20 bucks or whatever, right? Then they fire you off a letter, uh, another letter in about four weeks or so with, with a picture of the evangelist now. This is his ministry, right? With a picture of the evangelist walking up some steps. I've seen this with a letter in his hand claiming it was your prayer request. Look, I'm, I've got your prayer request in my hand. I'm taking it up to my prayer tower. And I'm not coming down till God answers your need. Now, if you could, we, we so appreciate how you helped us, uh, you know, in the past. Could you, could you please send another check-in for this vital ministry and so on? Folks, these are nothing more than crooks, con artists, thieves, and religious hucksters who present themselves as men and women of God come across so holy, so pious. And in reality, all they want to do is fleece the flock of God, lining their pockets with the money of the vulnerable, the gullible, and again, the desperate. How many people in this room have ever heard the name Robert Tilton? Raise your hand. Well, even less than the first service. Um, when I got saved and got into ministry, that was in the early 80s, his ministry was already going big, going to town. 
By the time you hit the late 80s, he had the fastest growing television ministry in the world. I mean, he had a giant church. He had a production company that would market his videos of himself and all around the world. The ministry in 1990 was bringing in $80 million a year. And back then, that was really significant. As I said, he was a household name, I mean, in, in Christian circles. Everyone knew Robert Till. I mean, yeah, I knew who he was. Uh, all he, I think for most of us, uh, all we had to do was watch him for a little while to know he was a charlatan, a huckster, you know, with all his theatrics. I actually went online yesterday, Googled his name to find out, you know, what, what happened. Well, here's what happened. He was really going big, big guns. I mean, he was really raking in the dough. He was everywhere. Every time you turn on Christian TV, he's there somewhere, okay? And, and one of the things he did was he would, uh, he would uh, encourage people to, you know, they'd send him a letter, and they'd fill out a prayer request, and he promised them he was going to take it to the Lord, and so on, and please send in a check. And so uh, the checks were mailed directly to the ministry's bank. I think it was in Tulsa or Dallas, something like that. Well, a very godly man named Ole Anthony, who ran a homeless shelter, still does, in the Dallas area. Now, here is a godly man. I mean, he has nothing. He devotes himself tirelessly to helping homeless people, making sure they have food and a place to stay. Very godly man. And he was incensed by this hucksterism that uh, Tilton was constantly, you know, presenting, you know, and he knew, he knew he was a con artist, all right? So he took it upon himself, knowing that all the letters come to the bank where this ministry was, had their accounts, he started to do a little dumpster diving. And he discovered thousands and thousands of letters in the dumpsters behind the bank from people that had sent in uh, returned the envelope, you know, with a prayer request and a check with some money uh, on it. He found the letter, the envelopes, the prayer request in the dumpster. The checks had been removed. He contacts Channel 7, and Diane Sawyer gets involved and does a big expose. And she exposes this on national television. It destroyed his ministry. Uh, he was brought down to nothing. Um, you Google Robert Tilton today, he's, he's still around. He uh, doesn't have a you know, TV show or a, a church. He does a lot of his fundraising off the Internet. Um, teaches a Bible study uh, once a month in some three-star hotel in Florida. And, uh, you know, uh, the little video I saw, they threw the camera people out because they didn't want anybody filming it. That was like two or three people there. Oh, how the mighty have fallen. Or more or less... Probably goes before a fall. You know, Peter warned us to be aware of these wolves masquerading as God's shepherds. I won't have you turn to the second Peter two, verses one to three. Peter said, But there were there were also false prophets in Israel, you know, in the Old Testament times is what he's saying. Just as there will be false teachers among you in the church age. They will cleverly teach destructive heresies and even deny the master who bought them. In this way, they will bring sudden destruction on themselves. 
Many will follow their evil teaching and shameful immorality. And because of these teachers, the way of truth will be slandered. In their greed, they will make up clever lies to get a hold of your money. It's always about getting your money. But God condemned them back then, and he's going to condemn them right now. He said, their judgment's coming, is what you say. They're not getting away with anything. Paul in 1 Timothy 6, verse 5, said that these people think that godliness, quote-unquote, what does that mean, is a, way to, is, is a means of gain. What Paul is saying is that there are people out there who think that pretending to be a godly Christian pastor or prophet or evangelist or leader of some Christian ministry is a way to get rich. They know how to play the game. They're good at deceiving people. Look, false shepherds, whether they were in the Old Testament or the New Testament or whether they're living right now, it's always the same thing, always the same. They never care about the flock. All they really care about is themselves. The New Testament especially says they're in it for the money, for the power and prestige. You know, they're the Michael Avenettis of the Christian church. They fancy themselves as celebrities as they start around across the stage wearing their $2,500 Armani suits, $500 Oxford loafers, uh, arriving to the ministry event, you know, in their private jet. I told you not long ago about Jesse DePlantis, one of these televangelists, who acquired recently his fourth jet. Now, why did he need four jets? Well, this latest one, he said he needed because he needed one big enough to fly halfway around the world without stopping for gas. So if you can fly halfway around the world on one tank, well, then you don't have to stop, right? You can get anywhere you got to go in the world and then, you know, fill up then. Oh, by the way, the, the jet cost $54 million. $54 million. Of course, Kenneth Copeland's ministry, not to be outdone recently, maybe a year or so ago, purchased an $8 million jet. They're trying to raise $17 million more to build a hangar to park the thing in. Because he needs a jet to fly to his quote-unquote ministry events. Copeland's interesting. He's worth, listen, over $750 million. $750 million. He lives in a $6 million lakefront mansion owned by the ministry. That's interesting to me. Because I thought ministers, pastors, and were supposed to be following Jesus' example. The Jesus who, when he was crucified, only owned the clothes on his back, right? The Jesus who said, don't lay up for yourselves treasures on the earth, but lay them up in heaven. The Jesus who said, the Son of Man has no house where to lay his head. But Kenneth Copeland lays his head every night on a, six, in a, on a pillow in a $6 million mansion. I'll let you decide who you think is following Jesus and who isn't. I'll tell you my two cents. I think these men and others like them are definitely not in ministry to help people. They use people to get what they want. As someone has said, they are fleecers of the flock and not feeders of the flock. And so Jesus is contrasting the false shepherds of Israel, and today, of course, by extension, with himself as the good and true shepherd. 
And before he ascended back to his father, he commissioned his under-shepherds, pastors, to conduct themselves as good shepherds to his sheep. The Greek word for shepherd is poimen, the word we get our English word pastor from. A pastor is a shepherd. That's what the very name means. To Peter, the good shepherd said, feed my lambs, tend, which means to watch over and protect my sheep, and feed my sheep. Peter took that to heart and passed it along to other pastor shepherds in the church when he said in 1 Peter 5, verses 2 to 4, he said, shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly. Listen, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly. Nor as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. I wouldn't want to be in the shoes of any so-called shepherd who uses the name of Jesus Christ to steal the last $10 out of a, out of a widow's Social Security money, who watches this character on TV and thinks he's a man of God, and she wants to support the work of God he's involved in. So she's living off cat food for the week, as she gives his, her last few bucks to this crook while he's living in a $6 million mansion, flying private jets all over the place. I wouldn't want to be in his shoes on the Day of Judgment. This reminds us, though, good shepherds, drawing out what Peter said, reminds us of what Paul, another good shepherd, Paul the Apostle, told the Ephesian elders regarding his ministry to their churches. He said in Acts 20, verses 33 to 35, he said, I have coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. Yes, you yourselves know that these hands, my own hands, Paul said, have provided for my necessities, but not just for me. I've provided for those who were with me. I worked so that I didn't have to ask you for anything. I wanted the gospel to be free. I didn't want you to feel like I, I was charging you to preach the gospel. But to God, we have more leaders and pastors like Paul today. He said, I have shown you in every way by laboring like this that you must support the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he said, it is more blessed Blessed to give than to receive. Guys, we're done. Let me just close by saying this. The church is rife with phonies, con men, hucksters, and rip-off artists masquerading as good shepherds. But their only interest, again, is to fleece the flock, not feed or care for God's sheep. Again, Peter said, in their greed, they will make up clever lies to get a hold of your money. We must exercise discernment in these last days. Jesus himself said the closer we got to his return, the more sophisticated, pervasive, persuasive the lies would become. This is not a time for us to skim our Bibles um, as if we're speed reading some, you know, something in the newspaper. This is a time for us to study, to show ourselves approved unto God, a workman who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. It's our time to, in this days, dark days of deception, and it's only going to get worse. 
Some of Satan's lies are very obvious, but they're getting more and more subtle, sophisticated. And if you don't know the word, even the elect might be deceived. In John 10, the good shepherd is calling you to make him your shepherd. Now, I think most in this room have done that. God bless you. It's one thing, though, to make Jesus your shepherd. In other words, to receive him as your savior and be born again. That's awesome. That's where it all begins. It doesn't end there, though. Now you have to follow your shepherd every day. My sheep hear my voice. I know them, and they follow me. Because let me tell you this. Didn't we abandon self-shepherding to follow the good shepherd? Because we weren't doing such a... I, know, I can't speak for you. We, I wasn't doing such a good job leading my life. Goodness, how many times do you have to lead yourself into a wall before you realize, I'm not, doing, I'm not good at this. And I wanted Jesus to take over. I wanted him to lead my life. A very wise man said, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge the Lord. He'll direct your paths. So we will pick up on that idea next week, God willing. Unless the rapture happens, and don't worry about it. Jesus will take over. <laughs> He'll do a much better job, by the way. So, uh, all right. And uh, we just want God to just take over and just you know, lead us. Yield to your shepherd. Don't fight the shepherd. He's the good one. He knows how to lead our lives. The last thing you want to do is fight him and, and, and try to, you know, direct your life somewhere that he's not leading. Obey his word is what I'm saying, right? You know, obey his word. He says, don't do something, don't do it. You don't have special dispensation. You know, no, nobody else can do it, but I know he's told me I can do it. I, I've heard young women say, you know, I, I know that I'm commanded not to be unequally yoked with an unbeliever, but I really believe God told me it's okay because he's going to get saved. Well, no, he didn't tell you that. You're speaking out of the imagination of your own heart or the devil's talking to you. So, okay, we'll leave it there, all right. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for your, the light of your word. And how it leads us in the darkness of this world. The lies, Lord. Your word is a light, a lamp. If we follow its precepts, if we follow the good shepherd, Lord Jesus, you are the word. If we will follow you in everything you have said, we will walk in the right paths. No, there won't always be easy, but there'll be the right paths for our lives. Give us grace to follow you, Lord, you know, without fighting you, to just surrender to your leading. Father, we thank you, Lord. We ask you to bless, continue to bless these studies in your word. In Jesus' name, amen.